Nightbooks presents The Apocalypse Theater Podcast with Benjamin Allen. Episode 2 Act 1 The Mountain King Lance Hunter couldn't let the freighter automatically try to land on the planet of Cowd Cavalt, so he used the manual controls in order to set down in a safe place amidst the hazardous winter storm conditions below. Cavalt was known for its blizzards and tundra landscape. He had found the Mountain King not long after he entered the planet's atmosphere. It towered into the stormy, snowy sky at a slight slant. He drifted around the vessel, shining lights in through the windows he could find that hadn't been buried in snow, but saw only empty rooms and an occasional pitch-black corridor. Based on his diagnostics, the Mountain King, a Class Eight Norwegian battle striker, was lodged at a vertical angle between a mountainous rock formation and an enormous block of ice. He couldn't land his ship on the mountain, and he couldn't land it on the surface of the ice without risk of damaging the fragile foundation holding the ship in place. The nearest structurally sound landing was two kilometers west of the Mountain King. After a somewhat rough landing, which damaged one of the three hydraulic props on the underbelly of his freighter, Lance spent the next 20 minutes preparing for his journey through the perpetual snowstorm outside. He wore three long-sleeved shirts, a Kevlar vest, and his thick, dark green jacket. Over his long johns, he wore a pair of pants and a pair of ski pants he'd bought on Earth 20 years earlier. He put on his thick rubber travel boots over his three pairs of socks, and then pulled on two pairs of gloves, and a third pair with rubber fingertips. He carried a pack over one shoulder, which contained electronic tools for opening security doors, a cutting torch to get through the doors he couldn't hack, and 200 feet worth of cable and climbing gear. The air on Cavalt wasn't breathable, so he had to wear a face mask with an oxygen tank strapped to his back. An oxygen tank lasted about an hour and a half, so he filled two more after the first. That gave him an hour and a half to get to the Mountain King, an hour and a half to figure out how to turn off the distress signal somewhere inside, and another hour and a half to get back to his freighter. He was about to open the blast doors to leave when he paused. He set down the two tanks. Lance took his assault rifle from its niche by the doorway and laced the strap over his chest. He hit the button to open the doors, grabbed the tanks, and descended the ramp into the blinding white snowstorm. Two kilometers might not seem like a very long way, but on Cavalt it felt like an eternity. Lance swung his extra tanks back and forth with his stride as he trudged through the knee-high snow. His face mask had an electronic display in the visor. According to the data at the bottom left of his sight, he was walking west at 0.2 kilometers per hour. It also read, in the bottom right, that it was negative 29 degrees, Fahrenheit, and dropping. The day was almost over. He had prepared well enough. He was beginning to sweat with the added work of marching through the snow and carrying the oxygen tanks. The snowfall lightened as he passed the hour mark. The Mountain King stood before him, a hazy black giant against the deadpan color of the sky. Creases of lavender marked the fabric of the clouds beyond the vessel. He searched for an entrance, but found only windows. The nearest door was ten feet below the ledge nearby. The next entrance was about forty yards up. Lance didn't want to risk damaging the ice holding the ship in place by drilling through it, so he chose the higher entrance. 
He discharged the first oxygen tank, which had about 20 minutes left, loaded the second onto his back, and set the third on the landing outside the ship so he could get it on his way out. He hoped it wouldn't be buried by another blizzard while he was inside, but he couldn't lug it with him up the wall. Lance climbed the wall using the many windows of the ship as footholds while climbing to the next window. They were conveniently placed, and the ship's slant was in his favor, so it only took about ten minutes to get to the blast door. He positioned himself with one knee propped on the door, and his other boot on the frame. He tried to open the door with his master key card, but there was no power to the door's card ID. He hadn't expected it to work, but trial and error begins with the simplest method. That ruled out hacking, so he withdrew his cutting torch. Blast doors are designed to automatically open the latch once the pressure is released. He started up the torch and hit the top and bottom of the frame, where the thin line of hatch separated the two sections of the door. Both halves of the door split apart and opened to a dark corridor. Lance shifted his weight back so that the arches of his boots were balanced on the ridge of the doorframe. He put away his torch and closed up his pack. Readying his assault rifle, he clicked on the flashlight built into the nozzle and shined it down the hall. The wind roared across the open doorway, screaming down the pitch-black hallway from behind him. Lance wanted to go slow and be careful, but he only had about 40 minutes to make his way to the distress signal and turn it off before he had 40 minutes to return and get his final oxygen tank. He made his way down the hall, acutely aware of how loud the hissing vapor of carbon dioxide from his face mask was in the stillness of the ship. He heard tapping further down the passage. Lance raised his light and darted the beam around the square way ahead. His rubber boots squeaked with every step. Something fell over down the hall, and he saw movement briefly, but his light and gun flew from his grasp as he fell. Lance smacked against the wall from where he'd just fallen and slid down until the wall ended. His fingers caught hold of a ledge, but his gun swung around on its strap and slammed into his pelvis. Lance grimaced in pain, but held on. Glancing down as the light on his gun rocked back and forth, he saw doors lining the hallway to the darkness below. He forgot to calculate the seemingly random corridors leading vertically through the ship-like veins. That was going to make navigating through the Mountain King a lot harder. Lance grabbed the ledge with his other hand and pulled himself up. His arms shook under the added weight of his gear and the oxygen tank. He shot his knee to the sharp edge, evening his weight onto his lower body. If not for the rubber-tipped gloves, he wouldn't have caught that ledge. The slant wasn't in his favor anymore. Lance, standing up carefully so as to keep from slipping into the abyssal corridor below, took a moment to breathe. He had to stay as calm as humanly possible in order to keep from sucking up too much oxygen. After tightening his gun strap so the assault rifle wouldn't injure him again, Lance jumped across the corridor and slid through a doorway into another hall. He stood up and walked a few paces before dropping through the first door he found. He caught the doorway and dangled into what was once the infirmary of the ship. His light shined over a large operating table bolted to the floor in the middle of the room. Cords draped from the ceiling and fell into a tangle of medical equipment and beds at the far wall below him. Lance let go of the doorframe and landed on the operating table. The bolts keeping the table pinned to the floor immediately gave way. He jumped to the second doorway in and out of the infirmary as the table crashed into the potentially dangerous pile of junk below. Hanging from the side of the doorway, Lance noticed a medical cabinet on the wall beneath his stomach. He popped the plastic cover off and looted the drugs, bandages, and alcohol from within. 
and then pulled himself through the door and peered down another hallway going up and down. The next hallway didn't drop much further, but it descended into a great foyer, possibly the middle of the ship. He had about 30 minutes left before he would need to start climbing back up, and judging from the way he had come in, he would probably have more trouble getting out. Lance dove through the doorway, and Free fell for what felt like a long time before grabbing hold of the doorframe separating the hall from the foyer. The weight of the oxygen tank ripped the muscles in his arms and back until they popped as he swung back and forth from the frame. Once he came to a relative stop, he moved his light around the room below. A great wire monument in the shape of the Mountain King rose from the floor on his right and climbed into the high pitch-black depths of the Great Hall on his left. Several doors led in and out of the room, but they weren't too far in any direction he could get to. Moving his legs forward and backward, Lance brought himself into a swing. When his boots lined up with the wire monument, he released. He fell through the distinctive model of the Mountain King and grabbed onto the wiring, but the shape was too round. He slid all the way down the beam until he landed at the middle of the ornamental vessel. Lance breathed a sigh of relief at his relative fortune. That's when he heard something strange. A series of high screeches that scraped under his skin. Other than his light shining at the base of his peripheral vision, he was able to see a few patches of twilight through a huge dome glass window above the monument. It took a moment for Lance to see the movement in the spaces between the minimal light, flapping black shapes like bats. He gripped the butt of his gun and turned the light toward the dome. Hundreds of screeching flappers screamed and broke into flight toward him. Lance quickly covered the light on his gun and slid further down the beam until he reached the bottom. He kicked off the model and aimed for an open door on the wall, but fell too quickly. Lance hit the metal wall like a fly on a windshield and slipped down a long curve until he was scrambling to keep from falling down the main corridor. He kicked his legs and grappled the doorway leading to the hallway an empty, blackened abyss below. God only knew how much deeper within the ship the control room lay. That's to say the distress signal was even located in the control room or cockpit. It could be at the engineering station, or the communications room. Some of the earlier model starships had the emergency controls located at a terminal near the medical bay. The Mountain King was definitely a more modern model battle striker, and he hadn't seen any terminals in any of the halls he'd scaled yet which meant most of the computer functions must have taken place on the main bridge. Keeping his light aimed down the corridor below, he looked up to see that the bat-like creatures had settled on the model shape of the Mountain King. They squealed and flapped blindly from their positions as Lance dropped to the next doorway down. The door was already partially open. Someone had jammed a chair leg between either side of the sliding door. He was able to pry it open by force and peer inside with his legs hanging down the main hall. He put his gun down in front of him. Gazing about the room with his light, he saw hundreds of rows of floor-mounted rectangular trows. Dead roots hung from the remaining dirt, and at the very bottom of the room, a genocide of roots and trees had come to rest. He saw something move nearby. He tried to aim his light at it, but it jumped at him. Lance caught sight of a dog-like face and a rounded mouth full of teeth before he reflexively released the wall and fell into the endless darkness below. He woke to the sound of beeping. It was his oxygen mask telling him that he had three minutes of air left. Fear was the first emotion that hit him, and then dread. He didn't have enough time to get back, meaning he was going to suffocate to death. He would be dead in ten minutes. 
Lance unhooked the cumbersome oxygen tank and dropped it off the padded seat next to him and didn't hear it make another sound. He looked around, realizing that he was resting on the back of a set of chairs. When he peered over them, he saw the front window of the main bridge. It was broken and viewing out to a faraway snowy canyon bottom below. His oxygen tank was a slowly spinning speck in the distance. Snow billowed around the giant hole of the window. Beneath the window was the control panel. A flashing red light told him that the distress signal was on. Setting his grapple between the chairs, Lance wrapped a cable around the base of the floor mount. He did all of this quickly, wasting as little time as humanly possible, and began to descend from the chairs. He lowered himself down to the control panel and shut off the distress signal. From his pack, he set up another device that sent out a signal that was on a frequency that only his company could receive. They would get it in a few days and send a salvage tanker out to pick it up. Unfortunately for Lance, this was his last job. He sat on the back of the pilot's seat and sighed, looking at the minute and a half of remaining air stored in his oxygen mask. It was all going to be over soon. He went over a few options. Since he was probably going to die anyway, and his freighter was just inventory for his company, Lance leaned over the pilot's seat and unlatched the main thrusters button. He flipped it and felt the Mountain King come to life. The lights on the bridge activated. The holographic diagnostics board flickered into being along the walls. Thrusters online and charging. Life support offline. The voice of the computer spoke over the intercom throughout the ship. Please head to the nearest evacuation escape module. Lance's eyes widened. He looked up to see the module on the wall above him. There would be emergency oxygen tanks up there, but he was going to have to figure out how to get to them. He noticed a wall railing had been installed for anti-gravity purposes. It would use up the last of his oxygen to climb it, but the railing led straight to the escape pod where there had to be spare oxygen tanks. Without a moment's hesitation, he jumped to the rail and began to climb. He watched the timer on his mask say one minute, then 45 seconds, and then 30 as he pulled himself to the top and began swinging hand over hand toward the opening. His mask gave a series of shrill warning beeps before he climbed into the port. Taking a huge gulp of air, he grabbed a tank from the escape pod and yanked it free. Lance took the deepest breath he could as the air ran dry. Slamming painfully into the seats behind him, he removed the nozzle on the end of the tank and plugged the hose from his mask to the port. The mask began to fill with air. The blinking red zero timer in the corner switched to a healthy green 48 minutes. Lance gave a huge sigh and collapsed on his back. He took a few minutes to gather his bearings before he began the cumbersome trip back to his freighter. Act 2 Assassin's Feed Vic sat at the table with his hands resting on the hardwood tabletop. He wore black denim jeans and a navy blue sport jacket over his green shirt. His short brown hair shined in the morning sunlight that poured through the eastern window of the cafe. It was 8.30 in the morning. There were 22 people in the cafe by Vic's count, most of whom were seated in the smoking section. He knew which car in the parking lot belonged to which patron, and which ones belonged to the chefs and waitresses. Nancy, his waitress, a woman with blonde hair who looked young enough to be in high school or possibly early college, brought his orange juice and placed it next to his hand. He thanked her. Condensation dripped down the side of the glass, meaning it had sat on the counter for a few minutes before Nancy got around to bringing it to him. 
he took a sip as Nick slid into the chair opposite to Vic, silent as always. He wore blue jeans and a dark blue denim jacket over his red t-shirt. He took off his Rangers baseball cap, revealing a head of wavy brown hair. It was the first time they had met in ten years. Are the eggs tasty here? Nick asked as he picked up his menu and scanned the choices. Not sure. Depends on the cook, really. Unless you go to Mickey D's. The eggs always taste the same at Mickey D's. I don't eat at McDonald's anymore. Nick turned the page and narrowed in on the burgers. Now this sounds good. How's life, Vic? Same old, Vic said, reclining in his chair. Nancy came back around. Can I get you something to drink? She asked Nick as she slipped a notepad and pen from her blue apron. Yeah, I'm going to get a pot of coffee and a pot roast melt. Can I get a side of pancakes with that instead of fries? Nick met Nancy's green eyes. It'll cost a dollar and seventy-nine cents more, said Nancy. Let's go with that. I'm just going to get a vegetarian omelet, also with a side of pancakes, Vic said, handing his menu to Nancy after she took Nick's. She sidestepped another waitress and disappeared into the kitchen. A vegetarian omelet? Could you be any more contradictory? Nick asked. You could get a vegetarian hamburger made with 100% beef. There are soy and tofu burgers, but they don't taste right. Well, the way I see it is you spend a dollar, you might as well enjoy it, right? Stay home and eat rice if you don't like it. Do yourself and the world a favor. Dad would scold you for eating the way you do, said Vic. You'll eat yourself into an early grave, he'd say. Yeah, well, look at Dad. He's dead. Nick dumped the bowl of creamer containers and began making a pyramid with them. Nancy brought a tall plastic coffee pot and placed it on the edge of the table. She put a coffee cup down before each of them and continued down the corridor to the next customer. You never liked Dad. I could never understand why. He taught you everything you know, and you despised him the whole way, Vic said. He poured himself some of the coffee and stole one of Nick's creamers. He peeled back the top and dumped the milk into the brew. Dad and I got along just fine until you came along. He liked you better, you know. You always thought that, but I didn't see it. I got whipped just as much as you did. You have no idea how much harder he grilled me than he did you. You weren't around when he trained me. You know how secretive he was about his lessons. Took me a long time to figure it out, but the guy was crazy, Vic. He was paranoid about everything, even us. You weren't there in the end. I was. That paranoia seeps into your skin. Vic nodded. If Dad was anything, crazy is definitely a good description. Where did you go anyway, Vic? Nick asked. All over, I traveled, pretended all the stuff that happened didn't, Vic shrugged. You ran away, you mean. We needed you and you disappeared as usual. Typical Vic. Remember Disney World? Vic laughed. At least it wasn't like the Empire State Building incident. I did a lot of crazy stuff, but I never destroyed millions of dollars worth of equipment. Only millions of dollars worth of Dad's time. Besides, I wasn't trying to save Dad when all that junk fell off the ESB. Yeah, well, sorry I run when I see 30 SWAT members coming at me. You ran the wrong way. Me and Dad ran too. You didn't think we took them all down, did you? You just proved you were only out for yourself. That's all. At least I'm honest about it. You and everyone else are just as interested in your own neck as I was in mine when I took off. If you don't believe me, then take a drive on the freeway for 20 minutes and you'll see what I'm talking about. Dad was using us. He knew while we were around, he would be safe. Maybe you're right, but Dad's dead now, and it's your fault. Excuse me if I disagree, whispered Vic. I'm not the one who started screwing with the government by telling my hits the truth. If it's your job description to take someone's life, then you take that person's life. Martyr. Nick crossed his arms and sat back in his seat. Realist, Vic corrected. 
I got out. I didn't want to be part of Dad's shitstorm of a life anymore. You didn't either, so don't act like this is all my fault. He got what was coming to him. Only because he went after you. He and I could have taken those guys together, but he was alone when they got him. Yeah, and that was for the best. The storm went down with him, just like it was supposed to. It couldn't have gotten any better, and now we're free. As free as people like us will ever be. Your ignorance never ceases to amaze me, Vic. They'll get you whenever they're ready. Since you've been off the grid, they've been keeping a low profile. All someone has to do is say a word, and you'll be just as dead as dad. If you don't believe that, then check your trail. If I know where you've been for the last six months, you can bet your ass they do too. You don't know. New York, California, Florida, Georgia, Arkansas, for God knows what reason, interrupted Nick. Living with some girl named Catherine who went missing a few weeks back. I have the video of your meeting in the convenience store. You're not hidden, Vic. You can't hide from anyone in this day and age. If you knew where I was all this time, then why bother asking me? Nick shrugged. It's a social question. Hi, how you doing? Where you been? What's been happening? Just tedious chatter, see? Vic said nothing. Nancy made her way to the table with a big tray with all their food on it in one hand and a stand in the other. She opened the stand and placed the tray on it before giving each of them their meals. The two thanked her and immediately began to dig in as she returned to the kitchen with the stand and empty tray. So other than following my actions day and night, what have you been up to? Vic asked. Finishing Dad's work. I'm almost done. Nick wrapped his mouth around the stack of pancakes on his fork and gobbled them down. Congratulations. Maybe Dad will rest in peace once you have. Vic ate half his omelet in one bite. You still look like a pig when you eat, Nick said. You look like a pig all the time. They inhaled their meals. Vic finished first and leaned back in his chair. Nick put his fork down and took a deep breath. You know, I always wondered why you really ran away. Vic said nothing. It might have had something to do with something I said, or an impression I gave you. Something you might have taken the wrong way. Nick stared blankly at a spot on the table. Do you want to know who Dad's final target is? Do you want to know why he quit the game, Vic? It became clear to Vic in an instant, and in that instant he knew what he had to do. Part of him knew the moment he walked into the diner. Vic kicked his chair back as Nick reached into his coat pocket for his twenty-two. Drawing the police glock he had stolen from Officer Melvin Peterson on his way through a small Kansas town, Vic fired three bullets in a vertical line alongside Nick's rising figure. Three bullet holes filled the glass behind Nick. Vic's back hit the floor with the chair and he tumbled into stance as Nick dropped under the table. He raised his gun from cover and fired aimlessly. Vic dove behind the aisle of booths. People were screaming and fleeing the cafe. He grabbed a plate from a table nearby that hadn't been cleaned and threw it like a frisbee at Nick. He heaved dish after dish at him before hiding on the inside of the booth at the back wall with his gun at the ready. Nick hurried across the aisle, stepping on broken dishes as he went. He saw Vic's hair and fired. Vic tucked his head inward, avoiding the shot, and fired around the padded seat. Nick jogged down the aisle toward the front door. He charged toward the window he had shot at the beginning of the firefight, jumping up onto the tabletop before diving through the glass. He flew over the hedges and rolled through the lawn. When he stood, Nick had just exited the front door. Vic raised his glock, lining the nozzle up with Nick's head. Nick saw him, but it was already too late. Vic pulled the trigger. The bullet met its mark in an instant. Nick's sudden loss of motion confirmed the kill shot. He started falling back, but his knees buckled first causing him to fall in an awkward splay. Vic didn't see him fall. 
He ran to the freeway nearby, hopped the guardrail, and fluidly grabbed the back of a semi-truck. He was gone as quickly as he had arrived. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to know more, check out Nightbooks, nightwithak-books.com. That's nightbooks.com. This podcast is completely word of mouth, so if you enjoy this type of thing, be sure to subscribe and leave a good review if possible. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, recorded, and produced by Benjamin Allen. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media and Nightbooks production.